Hello and welcome to our, at any rate, Emerging Markets Focus podcast that plays us to discuss recent developments and key issues of focus in the Emerging Market Fixed Income Asset Class. I'm Johnny Gilden from the Emerging Markets Strategy Team here at JP Morgan, and I'm joined by Saad Siddiqui, also from our Emerging Markets Strategy Team. Saad, thanks for joining. Hi, good to be here. So, EM Fixed Income Assets have generally struggled to establish some kind of trend over the last uh, couple of weeks, given conflicting growth data with some episodic financial stresses. I think our overall view, as we've discussed um, many times, is uh, one of caution on EM risky assets, given elevated probabilities as we go through the year of a US recession. Um, Certainly, Q1 growth data has been solid in places, although today's US GDP print was below expectations. But China, for example, had Q1 growth that surprised uh, to the upside after having been revised up in the forecast for a while as well. But the tail risks of either greater Fed hikes than the market is currently pricing or the weight of credit tightening in the US driven by banking sector concerns, these skew risk rewards towards more defensive positions for us, particularly uh, when we think about EM credit. And that banking sector stress has been a little bit coming to the forefront in the last week with some modest weakening in EM risk uh, on the back of that. But given we're in this waiting environment, in this discussion, we're going to return to some of the themes that have been attracting focus, both a longer term theme around the role of the US dollar in EM reserves with the implications that has for uh, EM currencies, and a nearer term theme as well of the risk of a US debt ceiling event that might impact EM assets uh, and how we think about that. So, Saad, let's start with uh, maybe the longer term theme, which has been um, getting some new debate, and that is on the role of the dollar as a reserve currency. And certainly recent weeks have seen uh, reports and articles around that. Why is that happening now? I think, first of all, it's important to get some perspective on this debate of the role uh, and the use of the dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take all that much effort to do a quick Google search on the history of this topic. And you find that it actually goes back to the 1970s. And since then, it emerges at least once or twice every decade as um, uh, as a big major topic and theme that prominent economists and policymakers and others um, seem to get fixated about. And each time we have this episode, it's often driven by, by different uh, factors and different forces. So for example, back in the 1970s, the debate was being driven by high US inflation and fears that the real value of the dollar was going to uh, you know, decline because of, of very high inflation and the inability uh, of the Federal Reserve at that point to get on top of the inflation problem, which seems a little bit um, uh, familiar right now. Uh, and then uh, in the 1980s, for example, it was driven by concerns uh, regarding the very rapid rise of Japan as an economic force and an economic power and uh, a sense that maybe the yen Uh, could take over the dollar's role as Japan becomes a much more dominant uh, economic power. Uh, It cropped up again uh, post-global financial crisis. And at that time, 
the worries and concerns were that uh, the Fed zero interest rate policy and successive QE policies would somehow debase the dollar and diminish its role as an international uh, reserve currency. Uh, so you, as you can see, this is uh, clearly not a new debate. It's not a unique debate. Uh, some of the, the factors you know, crop up in economic decline or political decline of the US, they seem to be recurring uh, things that prompt uh, this, this debate, but the dollar has powered through all of those uh, episodes in the past, you know, due in large part, I think, to the resilience of uh, the U.S. Uh, economy uh, and also, you know, having um, a political system that has has shown ability to kind of self-correct when where you do have these um, these kind of imbalances. Uh, so this brings us to today. So why is now why are all these media articles and um, and another uh, commentators, uh, you know, bringing this story up now? Uh, I think it's because of two primary reasons. Uh, the first reason uh, is that in recent years, there has clearly been concerted efforts by the Chinese authorities to internationalize uh, the renminbi, and uh, they have implemented this uh, via, you know, first, you know, there was the entry of, uh, of, of the renminbi into the SDR basket, and then uh, promoting the use of uh, their currency uh, in bilateral trade for settlement uh, and also entering into swap lines, bilateral swap lines with many um, central banks uh, across the world to help uh, to help facilitate the use of renminbi as a trade and settlement currency. Uh, there's also clearly a geopolitical angle to the debate right now as well about um, uh, you know countries potentially moving away from the dollar, not for economic, or political or inflation kind of macro reasons, but as a geopolitical hedge, uh, and this has been prompted by, um, you know, Western countries freezing Russia's uh, foreign currency assets and excluding it from SWIFT uh, in over the last um, uh, over the last year or so, and this really pertains not just about the use of the dollar per se, but this is a, a debate and a story about the international financial architecture, about payment systems, uh, about alternatives to SWIFT and so on. That's a great history. So how should we right now assess the use of the dollar as a reserve currency? I think there are two primary ways that we can go, uh, go about thinking uh, about this topic. Uh, the first is about um, you know, the use uh, of USD in FX reserves of, uh, of, of central banks. Uh, and that's a good starting point as an aggregate indicator of, uh, of its use as a reserve currency. Uh, but it is far from being a perfect measure. And as we'll discuss later in this podcast, I think looking at the dollar share in FX reserves could actually be quite a misleading indicator right now. Um, you know, we can, uh, you know, but more generally, if we take a step back, you know, we can uh, think about the use of the dollar both as an asset, as a safe haven asset, and we can also think uh, about its use in transactions, uh, in trade settlement, and so on. So there is a stock component to reserve currency status, and there is a flow component 
to reserve currency status. And there's a third element now coming up in this as well, which uh, I mentioned earlier, is uh, payment systems, about financial architecture, about the platforms that are being used, which is not about uh, currency diversification, but about system diversification. So I think those are the three, uh, those are the three dimensions we can think about uh, the, the use of dollar as, uh, as a reserve currency. And the third one of, is not about dollar as a reserve currency, but about uh, in a Western-dominated payment system. So what do the metrics around these different dimensions actually show right now? So when it comes to uh, the use of the dollar in transactions and in trade settlement, uh, it's clear that the dollar has been losing ground uh, over the over recent years, uh, even though it still holds the largest share when it comes to kind of use as a, uh, as a currency for, for trade settlement globally. But this is not a new trend. Um, for example, when the euro first came about uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, it became the settlement or the trade settlement currency of choice for countries in the EU, for the new newly um, uh, joining members in the EU, uh, in Eastern Europe, and also for those countries that are in the periphery of, uh, of the EU. And this trend, I think, of uh, kind of diversification of settlement currencies is probably likely to continue gradually and slowly, given that we know that the Chinese authorities are you know, quite proactive in promoting uh, bilateral trade uh, in local currencies rather than in US dollar. Uh, a lot of emer large emerging market countries as well are keen on, on settling their trade uh, bilaterally in local currencies. Uh, so that is a, a nascent emerging trend. Uh, we, we saw comments from uh, the Brazilian uh, president uh, recently also um, expressing a desire to, to you know, for, for these types of um, kind of bilaterally settled uh, trade in, in their own uh, local currencies. And given how China is such a large uh, trading powerhouse uh, to the extent this trend is going to continue, then uh, I think we will see diversification away from uh, from uh, USD when it comes uh, to trade. But at the same time, we know that uh, the vast majority of cross-border transactions uh, in the world are not about trade. They are about capital account or financial account transactions. It's the movement of capital. It's not just about the movement of, of goods and services. And given how open the U.S. Uh, capital account is, you know, the other countries, you know, China does not have uh, the same degree of openness of its, of its capital account. It means that the overall share of dollar in cross-border transactions uh, is, is unlikely to be, to kind of diminish uh, in a very meaningful way. Uh, in the near future, so long as the, the U.S. has has the most open capital account in the world, I think it's it's very hard to dethrone dethrone it. Now, the second element is about uh, what's been happening to the share of dollar in FX reserves. So the IMF data shows us that you know over the last um, uh, you know couple of decades, the share of the dollar in uh, allocated FX reserves has gone from 
the low 70s to the high 50s in recent years. So the latest data for Q4 22 shows that it was 58% of allocated reserves. But we should also remember that in the 90s, it was around the same level or even lower as well. So uh, it, the current level in the high 50s is similar to what the share of dollar was in FX reserves back in 1995. So I think one has to be careful in just extrapolating recent trends because you know we have uh, been here before in terms of the, the share of the dollar in, in global FX reserves. And it can go up and down for cyclical reasons as well. It's not necessary that it's only moving uh, for structural reasons alone. And what about gold and the role it plays in this? Yeah, so gold is uh, an interesting one because we clearly do see that in volume terms, there have been uh, you know, meaningful purchases of gold uh, by, uh, by EM central banks uh, in the past decade or so, and re that really accelerated post-GFC. So I think at that time, the purchases of gold by central banks uh, was being attributed uh, by, by kind of commentators uh, to QE policies and the fear that QE uh, in the US would lead to either inflation or a loss of purchasing power of the dollar. And it was attributed to a desire to by EM central banks to diversify away for those reasons. So that that's kind of part of the history of, of, of this kind of dollar demise narrative post GFC. Uh, but the trend of gold purchases has continued since then. So, you know, in our latest uh, EM fixed income focus, we show a chart of how for emerging market central banks, there's been a pretty consistent trend of gold purchases, but that's not happening for advanced economies. Uh, and in fact, some of the large advanced economies, if anything, have um, uh, in real terms been been selling gold rather than than purchasing it. Uh, but that said, it is important to note that if you look at those countries that have bought the most gold in the last, um, you know, in, in the last um, uh, you know couple of decades, it's been Russia, it's been China, it's been Turkey, it's been India. We also have some of the Central Asian. Uh, republics there, uh, it's not the case that gold has gone up as a percent of total reserves for all of those countries. You know, so if you take China, for example, uh, you know, we've seen large purchases of gold, but the share of gold in total official reserves actually hasn't changed all that much. You know, it's changed uh, quite a bit more uh, for Turkey, uh, on the other hand. Uh, so I think the gold purchases on their own, uh, to me, are not a you know, they're not a, uh, you know, necessarily a, a very reliable guide um, that countries are diversifying away from the dollar and that, that this is a sign that the dollar is losing its, its reserve status. Um, you know, other than a few idiosyncratic examples, on the whole, I don't see this as being a very credible indicator that EMs are moving uh, away from uh, the dollar into gold wholesale. It's true in some cases, but uh, I, I don't think that yeah, that that conclusion is uh, is a very strong one. So you said earlier that looking at FX reserves might be misleading. So coming back to that, why do you think that? So there's two major reasons for that. The first is that 
FX reserves are no longer the major part of foreign assets for the major surplus generating current, uh, countries. So if you take two countries for which we have data and who run large surpluses, China and Saudi Arabia, about 10 years ago, their FX reserves were about 70% of those countries' total foreign assets. And right now, they're about 35% of total foreign assets. So what's been happening is that these countries, while they've been persistently running surpluses over that period, have not been adding to their FX reserves in proportion to their ability to kind of generate uh, foreign assets. And this is because some of those surpluses are being redirected to sovereign wealth funds and other state-owned institutions or state-owned banks, for example. Um, it's also partly because the private sectors in these countries are becoming more sophisticated and deeper in investing abroad and the private sector is also accumulating uh, assets. Uh, but the data for the sovereign wealth funds and other ways and vehicles through which these countries invest abroad is, um, is, is, is much more opaque. They don't really always uh, give, uh, give, the, give the breakdown of their asset or currency holdings. So that makes it very difficult to make a strong conclusion about these countries' FX um, choices or reserve asset choices looking at the central bank reserve data alone. Fundamentally, FX reserves, we know are a form of insurance. And once you have enough insurance, there is very little incentive or reason to add to that, uh, to your rainy day funds. And uh, these countries that have been running large surpluses already had sufficient FX reserves a decade ago. And going forward, uh, you know, it's, it's much more sensible for them to be uh, investing across the risk spectrum, across different asset classes, rather than just adding more to FX reserves. Um, so I think uh, in, in, in short, uh, you know, those commentators and others who are making conclusions on reserve currency preferences, looking at the FX reserve data could be missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is FX reserves no longer uh, are, as, are as important. Um, the, the, the second bit is about um, the use of dollar by corporates and households as a hedge in a lot of emerging markets. And in the last couple of years where you've seen big inflation surges and dollar strength, uh, we actually have seen a tendency for households and, and corporates to hedge themselves by buying dollars. And that's because the U.S. has the most open uh, capital account. Um, so I think because of these factors, um, you know, the, the depth of the dollar is probably greatly exaggerated. And it's, uh, it's used both in transactions and as a reserve asset. Uh, to me seems uh, still in a very dominant position. Thanks Saad, for that. So let's shift gears really completely and move on to uh, a more near-term risk, and that is uh, the debt ceiling in the US, which is increasingly talked about certainly at recent conferences, and this may go down to the wire this summer. So broadly, how should EM assets be reacting to that kind of risk? First of all, it's very difficult to think about the exact fundamental channel through which this debt ceiling debate and concerns impact emerging markets. Um, you know, just like we saw uh, last month when you had the banking stresses, again, it was 
it was a bit difficult to tease out the precise uh, fundamental reasons uh, and the fundamental spillovers that would impact uh, EM. Uh, but if you take a, a look at, for example, the last episode of this uh, back in 2011, uh, first of all, it's very difficult to disentangle the global context from the debt ceiling. You know, back in 2011, of course, we had the Eurozone uh, debt crisis taking place. Um, you know, so there's a lot of other things going on. Um, but if you kind of zoom into that period uh, where the 2011 uh, debt ceiling uh, debate and, and concerns about it uh, were really peaking through, uh, through July and August, uh, we did see, you know, a spike in uh, U.S. Treasury volatility. You can proxy that via the move index. And we had, you know, a, a very short-lived drawdown in EM total returns. If you look at whether it's local currency or hard currency and kind of, you know, low single-digit total return um, uh, was uh, negative total return was what we saw back then. But in terms of, if you think about that relative to the volatility of the asset class, if you try to take, say, a Z-score of that, it doesn't really uh, push the needle as being uh, a major a major event. Uh, so I think what we can say is that a lot will depend on what's happening in the global context at the time. If there are concerns about a, of a U.S. recession, are you know, much uh, much greater in the summer than they are right now, then maybe that could exacerbate that ongoing trend. But if there are no major fundamental concerns at that point, if there's nothing acute going on, um, I'm not sure that this is going to be really a major tier one driver for, for EM asset prices. Great. And that brings us to the end of this JP Morgan at any rate Emerging Markets Focus podcast. Thanks to you, Saad, for joining today and thank you all for listening and we hope to have you back again with us for the next one. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content. For more information, including important disclosures, 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on the 27th of April, 2023.